Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat next to the fire. Juvenile detention centers across the United States share a common objective, to rehabilitate young offenders so they don't go on to commit more crimes. In theory, anyway. But this inevitably brings to mind the timeless question of nature versus nurture. Is it even possible to redirect a developing mind once it sets down a course of criminality? Or does engaging in illicit activities fuel a dark desire for more? In the case of Craig Price, otherwise known as the Warwick Slasher, there was every indication he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. His inherent charisma effectively deceived those closest to him. Little did they know he would go down in history as being Rhode Island's most notorious serial killer. At the same time, his case would serve as a major catalyst for widespread reform. Craig Chandler Price was born on October 11, 1973, in Warwick, Rhode Island. His father, John, was the supervisor of a Pepsi plant in nearby Cranston. Shirley Price was a clerical worker for Kmart. Together, they had three children, Kim, John Jr., and Craig, their youngest. Much like today, in the 1980s, Warwick was predominantly white. African-American families like the Prices made up around 1% of the population. Despite the lack of diversity, Craig Price enjoyed a happy childhood in a working-class Warwick neighborhood known as the Buttonwoods. By all accounts, neighbors considered him friendly and polite. He was known to help out elderly residents by carrying groceries to their doors or shoveling snow off their driveways. There was a major turning point in Price's behavior between the ages of 10 and 13, he started accruing a laundry list of petty crimes that included breaking and entering, drug use, and stalking. On more than one occasion, he was caught sneaking around neighbors' backyards and peeping into their windows. For acting out, Price consistently got a slap on the wrist. His parents surmised he had just gotten involved with the wrong crowd at Gorton Junior High, but his tendency to misbehave only worsened over time. At the end of 1986, when Price was just 13, one of his burglary accomplices snitched on him. This led to an arrest, lending him a two-week stint at the Rhode Island Training School for Youth, a correctional facility for young offenders. Price's parents hoped that the detainment would scare some sense into him. However, less than two years later, his violent nature surfaced yet again. Price had grown into a bulky teenager with a baby face, 
His build made him an easy selection for Warwick Veteran High School's football team. Parents of classmates called Price a bad influence, but he was constantly surrounded by friends. His peers viewed him as the life of the party, and he had a vivacious sense of humor. One of Price's closest friends was an older boy named Scott Putman. The high school senior had a rough family life and stayed at the Price residence for several weeks at a time. One night in August 1989, the two young men stayed out until the early morning hours. Upon returning home, Craig's older sister Kim reprimanded them for making their family worry. An argument soon followed. In Scott's own words, as quoted by the Boston Globe, Craig picked up a soda can and threw it at her, and she called the police to teach him a lesson. When the police came, he pushed one of the officers. Needless to say, assaulting a police officer was an arrestable offense. Once again, Price was sent to juvenile detention, this time for almost a month. Kim, 21 at the time, was so traumatized by the incident, she moved to Texas. Price was released on probation by mid-September. He was disappointed to learn that in addition to being held back in the ninth grade, he was also kicked off the football team. It's difficult to say if this chain of events pushed him over the edge. His next act exposed the full extent of Craig Price's simmering rage. On July 27, 1987, 27-year-old divorced mother of two Rebecca Spencer was stabbed 58 times with a 10-inch knife. Her brother Carl came over to check on her and walked into a gruesome scene. By sheer luck, her two children had been staying with their father at the time. Tragically, the case went unsolved for years, stirring up anxiety in the Buttonwoods neighborhood and beyond. Violent murders like that just didn't happen in the area. Another crime occurred in the same neighborhood more than two years later. 39-year-old Joan Heaton lived a few houses down with her two young daughters, 10-year-old Jennifer and 8-year-old Melissa. The girls lost their father, U.S. Army Sergeant John J. Heaton, at a very young age. Further tragedy befell the family when Joan and her daughters were found brutally murdered on September 4, 1989. The gory scene was discovered by Joan's mother, Mary Bouchard, and Joan's sister, Mary Lou Bouchard. After not hearing from Joan and the girls the entire Labor Day weekend, the two women grew alarmed. It wasn't like Joan to fall completely silent. As Mary and Mary Lou entered the house, the first thing they noticed was blood covering the walls. They made it as far as the hallway, where they found Joan lying under blood-soaked sheets. Fearful of what else they might encounter, Mary stopped in her tracks and notified authorities. Detective Tim Colgan from the Warwick Police Department was the first to arrive on the scene. He would later tell reporters he had never witnessed such savagery. Detective Kevin Collins got there three minutes later and was equally horrified by what he saw. There was so much blood because all three victims were mercilessly butchered. The state coroner determined Joan had been stabbed 57 times before being strangled. The body of her older daughter, Jennifer, was found a few feet away. She was stabbed 62 times. Melissa's body was spotted on the kitchen floor. She had been stabbed so forcefully that the knife blade had broken off and could be seen protruding from her neck. This had been an act of unbridled savagery, overkill, as detectives called it. 
As word spread around about this merciless attack, the Buttonwoods community was paralyzed by fear. A whole family had been wiped out in the most brutal way imaginable. Overnight, the peaceful town of Warwick was transformed. Before it had been the kind of place where residents left their doors unlocked. Now with a vicious killer on the loose, people installed floodlights, bought security alarms, and padlocked their doors. Local police frequently patrolled the neighborhood where the victims lived in an effort to protect citizens and keep an eye out for potential leads. Because the victims had been a single mother and two young girls, women who lived alone and single moms with young children were the most terrified. What if the killer had similar targets in mind for his next attack? Two crime watch meetings held by Warwick PD started attracting a lot of attention. Over 1,100 people reportedly attended, eager to learn how to keep themselves safe. One resident, Butch DePippo, told Boston Globe, Crime Watch people began walking the neighborhood at 3 a.m. in groups of threes. One guy said anybody who walks into his house in the night is going to get a 38 in his face. One guy rigged tin cans on string around the house so anyone walking around would trip on it and make noise. While Warwick neighbors took protective measures, the rest of the state was also panicked. Gun stores experienced a shortage, and shelter dogs were adopted at a higher rate. No one wanted to be rendered defenseless if this madman arrived at their own doorstep. The pressure was on for investigators to identify a suspect, and fast. In the late 1980s, Warwick's police force was modestly sized, with only 180 officers. An extensive investigation would be required to solve this case, which was quite an undertaking with limited local resources. Detective Captain Ronald Carter and Chief Wesley M. Blanchard led the investigation, relying heavily on assistance from the state. Since DNA technology at the time was limited at best, detectives focused on neighbors of the Heatons, especially those with criminal records. They narrowed in on Craig Price, who had been released from his latest stint at the Juvenile Correctional Center three days before the Heaton murders. Since the night of the triple homicide, 15-year-old Craig Price had been seen around school with a heavily bandaged left index finger. When friends asked how he got the injury, he gave a few different answers. He had cut it while drunkenly busting out a car window, fell on a piece of glass, sliced it on the hood of his father's car. Price's classmates began teasing him around school that he was the murderer, and he simply laughed it off. When detectives started interviewing Price's friends, it was clear there were many inconsistencies in his story. This prompted them to bring Price in for questioning. Price gave no plausible explanation for the deep gash on his finger. It was highly suspicious to investigators. The most useful evidence found at the crime scene had been a bloody sock print. It happened to match Price's size 13 feet. This gave detectives enough evidence to obtain a search warrant of the Price's property. Nothing notable was located inside the house, but a thorough search of a backyard shed led to a telling discovery. Six bloody kitchen knives wrapped in bath towels and then stuffed into a garbage bag. They had found the murder weapons. Price was brought into the station one last time. With his mother Shirley accompanying him, detectives had enough evidence to warrant an arrest, 
they wanted to see if Price would confess. And that's exactly what happened. Through tears, Shirley urged her son to tell the detectives anything they wanted to know. Then, in an eerily calm tone, Price recalled the events of the night the Heatons were murdered. Local news station WPRI would later air Price's taped confession. During one round of questioning, Price had told detectives he broke into the Heaton home, intending to steal a VCR. Now we admitted he had been clutching a small knife, walking through the Heaton's backyard. He used his knife to slice through a mesh window screen, slipping his shoes off before climbing inside. Several minutes later, Joan Heaton stirred from sleep and crossed paths with Price in the kitchen. The woman screamed and tried to run, but Price grabbed her. While they struggled, the boy grabbed several knives, including a large butcher knife. The commotion woke Melissa and Jennifer, who ran towards their mother. She yelled for her daughters to call 911, but they were frozen in terror. Joan put up a fight, biting her attacker in an attempt to get away. But the stocky teen overpowered her, stabbing her relentlessly before strangling her to death. Price set his sights on the girls next. He didn't want to leave behind any witnesses. He held Jennifer down as he plunged the knife into her chest. One swift kick from her caused Price to slice open his own finger. Then there was Melissa. After forcefully stabbing her, Price ensured her death by crushing her skull with a kitchen stool. Before fleeing, Price grabbed a bath towel to tuck the bloody knives into and shoved them into a garbage bag. The young teen told detectives he covered the bodies with blankets and sheets so he didn't have to look at what he had done. Price's confession shocked even the most seasoned detectives. Hearing a young man nonchalantly recount how he had slaughtered three neighbors was deeply unsettling. Retired Warwick detective Ken Anderson pointed out to WPRI the most chilling part was Price's total lack of remorse. Detective Ronald Carter corroborated the sentiment to the Boston Globe by saying, There is nothing there. No emotion whatsoever. The family surely has shown some. But with him, there is nothing there. You can look at him and say, Is he a psychopath? One aspect of the crime that evaded investigators was a motive. Why had Price targeted the Heatons? What prompted a teen boy to carry so much aggression, especially when he came from a stable and loving household? Price cited racism as the source of his fury, but by all accounts, he was well-liked around the neighborhood and in school. Detectives found the boy's rationale deeply puzzling. The details Price had filled in by confessing reminded investigators of a local cold case. The murder of Rebecca Spencer... There were too many similarities between that case and the Heaton murders to ignore. Both cases occurred in the same neighborhood after dark and involved knives as the murder weapon. Detectives brought up the Spencer murder to Price shortly after his confession. He denied any involvement, correctly surmising there had been no viable evidence from that crime scene. But later that same day, he relented and admitted Rebecca Spencer had been his first victim. Spencer had lived a few houses away, and Price had made a habit of spying through her windows on several occasions. It was a humid July night when she was killed. 
Through her living room window, Price spotted her lounging on the couch, wearing just a t-shirt and underwear. He entered the house through an unlocked back door. He tiptoed to the living room and stabbed Spencer till he was sure she was dead. At that time, Price was only 13 years old. With the additional confession, it was evident Price was a serial killer. The truth had emerged like a tidal wave. He sealed his fate by admitting he had been high on drugs during both sets of murders. He smoked pot before killing Spencer and was under the influence of LSD and marijuana when he massacred the Heatons. Price was arrested on September 17, 1989, just two weeks after the Heaton murders. Since he admitted entering the victim's homes, he was also charged with two counts of burglary. There was one major obstacle standing in the way of justice. Price's age. The all worked in his favor, and he knew it. Price was a month away from turning 16 when he was arrested. As a minor, state law at the time dictated he couldn't be tried and convicted as an adult for his crimes. The day after confessing, Price's sentencing hearing was held at the Kent County Courthouse. He pleaded guilty to all charges and waived the right to a trial. Price received the maximum penalty possible for a minor. Detainment at the Youth Correctional Center until he turned 21. Upon being released, his records would be sealed. 30 of Price's school friends had gathered outside the courthouse to show their support. According to the Kokomo Tribune, while being escorted to the van that would take him to the Juvenile Correctional Center, Price shouted jovially to his friends, Later, when I get out, I'm going to smoke a bomber. That was slang for a big joint. Price was driven 10 miles to his home away from home, where he would be incarcerated for 5 years and 17 days. In October of 1994, when he turned 21, Price would be able to live his life as though the murders never happened. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me down there my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask... Did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. 
prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. This meant that the families torn apart by Price's actions had a little over five years to do something. There was no way they could accept him being a free man after all the suffering he caused. Mary Lou Bouchard, Joan Heaton's sister, reacted to the outcome by telling the Arizona Star, It's hard to put it behind you when you see him coming out so soon. You don't get a sense that justice was done. The terrible irony of the situation didn't escape James O'Neill, Rhode Island's Attorney General from 1987 to 1993. In early 1989, he had sponsored legislation that would have enabled the state to prosecute juveniles as adults if a capital crime had been committed. The bill was approved by the state assembly, but died in the Senate. Price had narrowly dodged being brought to justice as a mass murderer. Within a month of Price's court hearing, the state made a third attempt to amend juvenile law, and the legislature passed. Unfortunately, it couldn't be applied to Price retroactively, but it could prevent young offenders from getting away with murder in future cases. The news didn't sit well with Detective Kevin Collins, who had been among the first to arrive at the scene of the Heaton murders. When he arrived home that night, Collins couldn't help but cry over what he had seen. No one deserved to be killed in such a callous, animalistic way, least of all two innocent girls. Collins was haunted by their senseless deaths. After Price's hearing, the detective's sorrow morphed into frustrated determination, which propelled him into action. In 1993, Collins rallied the victims' families together to form a group called Citizens Opposed to the Release of Craig Price, or CORP. Through its fundraising efforts, the victim rights groups managed to raise $13,000, Corp used the money to have banners flown over several densely populated areas, including Miami, the New Jersey shoreline, Chicago, and Los Angeles. The banners displayed messages like, Killer Craig Price, moving to your city? Beware. And, Killer of Four, Craig Price moving here, no police record. The proclamations brought public awareness to the case. Before long, various media outlets were reaching out to Corp. National support was strengthened when Collins appeared on Larry King Live and Joan Heaton's sister sat for interviews with Time and Newsweek. Court members just hoped their tireless efforts would pay off. Detective Collins remarked to the record, Our aim is to make Craig Price as famous as Michael Jackson or Madonna. Yes, we have to resort to gimmicks and unusual messages to get our message across. The political system is too slow. Craig Price is a serial killer, stomped temporarily at four killings. He should be locked up for life. In October 1993, Corp organized a rally in Providence on the State House steps. Hundreds of supporters gathered to deliver a petition to then-Governor Bruce G. Sunlin. 
The document, which contained 35,000 signatures, urged Sunland to keep Price in prison for the sake of public safety. But the state had to follow the juvenile law in place when Price had been incarcerated. Although the governors seemed supportive of their cause, Corpett had a wall. Victims' families continued the fight. They received even more publicity when President Bill Clinton arrived in Providence in May 1994. Demonstrators welcomed him to the state house with banners about the Warwick slasher and the importance of keeping him locked away. A short time after the visit, a reporter interviewing the president asked his opinion on Price. According to the Boston Globe, Clinton said that he thought it was, quote, outrageous that this kid could get out, but the president did nothing to prevent that from happening. Governor Sunlin reiterated his support in June 1994 when a candlelit vigil was held outside Warwick City Hall. As quoted in the Arizona Daily Star, he told the crowd, Everyone in state government shares your concerns. Everyone in state government wants to blow out the candle on Craig Price and keep him behind bars. Luckily, Rhode Island's newly appointed Attorney General Jeffrey B. Pine was also on their side. He would prove to be a man of action. When asked about the case, Pine told Associated Press, The viciousness of the crimes, combined with his youth and no apparent motive whatsoever, leave outstanding questions as to his mental status. This wasn't merely a break-in that went bad. This is an individual who poses a very serious threat to the community. Media reports of Price's behavior while incarcerated created more public anxiety over his potential release. During his detainment, Price had bulked up even more by regularly lifting weights. He boasted to anyone who would listen about, quote, making history when he was freed. Then antagonized law enforcement by creating a rap video about killing a cop. It was evident his violent nature wasn't a thing of the past, which the public found very concerning. Pine knew something had to be done to keep Price where he belonged. He flew to the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, to seek the advice of Greg McCary, a leading expert on serial killers. The criminal profiler had worked on hundreds of cases, but even he was stunned by the violence Price exhibited. An article by the Associated Press correspondent, McCrary, reviewed the case and concluded that Price was, quote, a human predator who showed no empathy or remorse and was highly likely to kill again. Following his 1989 arrest, following his 1989 arrest, psychologists had examined Price on the state's behalf and arrived at similar conclusions. The attorney general felt citizens were right to worry about the young murderer's release. When Pine took office in 1993, he had advocated for legislation that would enable judges to weigh criminal records when determining whether to commit someone to a psychiatric hospital. His proposal passed in 1994 and was named the Craig Price Bill. Under this new legislation, a judge ordered Price to undergo additional psychological testing. Price refused to be examined under the advice of his court-appointed lawyer, who rightfully suspected prosecutors were trying to keep him behind bars. But Price's refusal completely backfired. The Attorney General's office then filed contempt of court charges, which infuriated Price. He threatened to, quote, 
snuff out a corrections officer, which brought an additional charge of extortion. Pine commented to the Associated Press on the new development by saying, We were dealing with a quadruple murderer who had threatened to kill again. We were going to prosecute him to the full extent of the law. As the date of Price's release loomed closer, it seemed increasingly unlikely that he would be let out. Price believed the contrary. In response to the latest charges, he had hired criminal defense attorney Robert Mann. Mann had a statewide reputation for taking on challenging civil rights cases and felt confident his client would win in court. The high-stakes trial was held in early October 1994, just a few days before Price's 21st birthday. It was now or never. Either the state would be successful in preventing the release of a violent killer, or the public's worst fears would come to fruition. J. Patrick Youngs, from the state attorney general's office, stood in for the prosecution. Mann contended the state was twisting laws in their favor to keep Price at bay. He accused the state of being discriminatory by holding Price to legal standards they wouldn't necessarily apply to someone else. Youngs countered with irrefutable evidence that Price had violated a court order and threatened a corrections officer, thereby proving his temper had a short fuse. There were two key witnesses for the prosecution, Darren Lucas and Brian Terry. They were guards in the maximum security area where Price was housed. In October of the previous year, prison guard Mark Petrella conducted a strip search and found four cigarettes and a lighter on Price. Following protocol, Petrella wrote up the report on the contraband and handed it to Price to sign. This made Price fly off the handle, and that's when the two guards overheard him threaten Petrella's life. Officer Brian Terry served on a disciplinary board at the time. They resolved to keep Price in solitary confinement for two days. Petrella said to the Associated Press, I took the threats very seriously. I knew what Craig Price was capable of. But jurors struggled with the lack of precautions taken afterwards, undermining the notion that Price posed a threat to the officer's safety. Petrello returned to work the following day. Price later told reporters he never threatened Petrella, calling the incident a political conspiracy to keep him in prison. After 10 hours of deliberation spread across two days, the jury found Price guilty. As if to substantiate the prosecution's claim, Price reacted to the verdict by launching into an angry tirade about racial prosecution. As cited in the Boston Globe, he proclaimed, The media has once again done a good job of creating a monster, not just a boogeyman, but a black boogeyman. Price continued to rant about how the jury's decision was unfair. He had done his time and had a right to be free. This was only a fraction of the hostility Price held inside. The judge was confident that the jurors had made the right choice. Youngs told the Boston Globe, The judge just got a glimpse, and that's all he needed. Price was sentenced to 15 years, the maximum term for the two charges. He would serve time for seven years and eight suspended. The suspended sentence is given by a judge so the convict can serve time on probation. A year-long sentence was tacked on for the contempt of court charge. It dismayed prosecutors and members of the court that in seven years, they would once again be tasked with impeding Price's release 
but it brought them more time to identify legal backing to keep Price incarcerated. For now, there was a small consolation. Instead of following celebratory traditions of buying his first legal drink at a bar, Price spent his 21st birthday locked inside the state's adult correctional institution. At the moment, the world felt a bit... At the moment, the world felt a bit safer. Mann told the press he planned to file an appeal. He remarked on the verdict to the Providence Journal by saying, The test of the system is not whether some middle-class white kid caught with an ounce of marijuana gets a fair shake. The test is whether someone portrayed as a larger-than-life evil gets a fair shake. A trend emerged over the course of Price's sentence. The state found reasons to charge and convict Price for offenses committed in prison. When he got involved in fights, the state slapped on some assault charges. On three separate occasions, Price attacked and maimed corrections officers. Time and time again, Price's sentence was extended due to his troubling behavior. As promised, his lawyer filed a series of appeals. One of them even made it all the way to the state Supreme Court in 1993. The appeal was ultimately denied due to Price's continued refusal to seek psychiatric treatment. The judge concluded that Price had no interest in addressing his issues and therefore retained a high risk of reoffending. Over the years, Price made several court appearances for additional charges. In May 1997, he faced another conviction of criminal contempt, this time in Rhode Island's Supreme Court. Chief District Court Judge Albert DiRabio sentenced Price to 25 years. He had to serve for 10 years before coming up for parole, but if Price refused treatment again or got in trouble while inside, he would have to serve the remaining 15 years. This was a cautionary measure the judge hoped would set Price straight. The state's inventive methods of extending Price's incarceration were controversial. Some mental health advocates found it cruel to keep Price in prison if he was afflicted with a personality disorder or some other undiagnosed mental illness. State officials reiterated how Price never took the help he was offered. Attorney General Pine commented on his approach to the Boston Globe by saying, We had a unique combination of the state's most heinous crime committed by one of its youngest criminals. It was a chaotic, emotional time, and I think we did a good job of making the system work. In 2004, Price was transferred to the Florida Department of Corrections for security reasons. His notoriety had created a disruptive level of publicity at the Rhode Island Correctional Facility. In Florida's Sawini Correctional Institution, prison officials denied all media interviews. What may have been a fresh start for some inmates just got Price into more trouble. He continued to assault other inmates and correctional officers. One incident stood out. On April 4, 2017, Price was accused of a murder attempt on fellow inmate Joshua Davis. Price had entered Davis's cell that day, armed with a five-inch shiv, and used it to stab him repeatedly. Davis tried to get away, but Price tackled him and resumed the attack. Davis survived, but suffered serious injuries. Security footage confirmed the attack was premeditated and that Price had aimed to inflict fatal wounds. For his own safety, Davis was transferred to the Walton Correctional Institute. According to the news station WPRI, 
In the days leading up to the assault, Price was convinced someone was poisoning his food. He focused his attention on Davis as the culprit because of the accessibility Davis's prison job afforded him. He worked as a runaround, delivering items from the prison commissary to other inmates. When he attacked Davis, Price was less than a year away from potentially being paroled. This rage-fueled act showed prison officials Price remained a danger to society. In 2019, Price entered a guilty plea to attempted first-degree murder charges for Davis's assault. As part of a plea deal, the state of Florida sentenced him to 25 years. In exchange for this shorter sentence, he agreed to be classified as a habitual felony offender and waived the 524 days of jail credit he accumulated. According to an email sent from the Florida's assistant state attorney, Sandra L. Rosendale, to the Providence Journal, if Price were to violate probation in any way after his sentence, he would be sent back to prison and locked up for life. J. Patrick Youngs, now assistant DA in Rhode Island, was relieved to hear Price wouldn't be walking the streets anytime soon. He remarked to the news station WPRI, I can't thank the prosecutors down in Florida enough. They recognized how serious Craig Price was, period, to society, but also how important and significant the case was to us here in Rhode Island. I've seen a lot of really, really bad people. There is nobody like Craig Price. At the time of this recording, Craig Price is 48 years old. He has spent most of his adult life in prison, mostly due to efforts made by the state and his own actions. This whirlwind case greatly impacted how Rhode Island handles juvenile offenders. Since the late 1980s, if a minor commits a felony like murder, the state can try them as an adult. While no amount of prison time for Price will bring the victims back, the families they left behind can rest easy, knowing he can't take more innocent lives. Thank you for listening. Keep the fire burning. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.